of the kind of conversation that I don't think we have often enough. And that was the genesis for this session, the idea that there is a lot of talking about Islam, there is a lot of talking about, in particular, the issues that um, yeah, women, Muslim women face, but not enough conversations uh, with um, Muslim women. Um, so our speak panellists today are Susan Carland, PhD candidate at Monash University, totally about to finish. Um, <laughs> Um, researching the way Muslim women fight sexism in the Muslim community. In 2012, she was one of named, uh, named one of the most, 20 most influential Australian female voices by The Age, and uh, she's a, one of the most influential Muslims in the world uh, and a Muslim leader of tomorrow, named so by the UN Alliance of Civilizations. She was one of the people who started the wonderful and, and you know, sadly, sadly lamented SBS comedy panel and sketch show, Salam Cafe, uh, which goes to show that uh, people who are teaching politics and leading an otherwise very, you know, have a serious professional life, um, we have to try and bring out the, the, the jokester side. <laughs> Randa Abdel Fattah is a Muslim of uh, Palestinian and Egyptian heritage. She's a writer, lawyer and human rights advocate. Randa spent, I think, about 10 years working as a litigation lawyer during the time uh, that she's also been a prolific writer, both of opinion journalism on a huge range of political issues. She's someone who's called on to comment on issues to do with Islam in Australia, but also has been um, uh, uh, vocal on issues to do with uh, Palestine. Um, and she's now undertaking a PhD uh, exploring multiculturalism and everyday racism in Australia. She's written books, um, many of them for a young adult audience. If you haven't passed them, read them yourselves or passed them on to daughters, nieces, granddaughters, friends, um, titles like Does My Head Look Big In This? And um, The Friendship Matchmaker tell you that there's something wonderful going on in those books about what life is like in Australia and, uh, and gives you an insight into the experience of, of, of uh, young women in particular in the Muslim community. I wanted to start off by asking each of our speakers to tell us a little bit about their background, because I think part of having these conversations is, is getting to know uh, each other. And I'm going to start, actually, by telling you a little bit about why this is an interesting conversation in particular for me to have. Um, is that I've spent a couple of years living in Lebanon, the source of most of our uh, migrants of uh, Islamic background, and so had a lot of experience living in a culture that was with a, with a, substantial, uh, with a substantial part of the population Muslim, and where you had to think in, in daily life about all kinds of issues to do um, with a, a culture of people of different religions, because that's very much a live political issue. Um, and so we'll start by asking Susan to tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you came to be somebody who's so interested in these issues. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, well, I became Muslim when I was a teenager. And the first question everyone normally says, or they don't even ask, they just presume, oh, you became Muslim to get married, right? That's just what's always said to me. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't convert to get married. I became Muslim... Um, I became interested in Islam when I was 17, um, and I, that came just out of a curiosity as to why I believed what I did. Is it because I think it's true, or is it just what I've been raised to believe? And so, out of curiosity, I started to look into other religions, and to my immense surprise, Islam made a lot of sense to me. 
Um, but I didn't become Muslim until I was 19 because um, I was quite frightened at the prospect. I didn't have very positive um, opinions about Islam. And so it took me a long time to uh, accept what I thought within myself, I guess would be the best way to put it. And also I was really worried about how my family was going to react. Um, but it got to the stage where I realised this is what I think and I can't um, not live this life just because I'm worried about family reaction or my friends not wanting to speak to me anymore. So when I was 19, I became Muslim. And after that, um, you know, I was a single woman and it was after that that I, that I got married. Um, in terms of how I became interested in, in these issues, I guess what I found is that when you're a Muslim, you're not really given the choice not to be, whether you are interested or not. Um, and especially as soon as I converted, I had people in my family and friends saying to me, but, okay, so you're a Muslim, so what's going on in Afghanistan? Like I would know at 19, be able to explain the political situation there. But why did the Saudi Kingdom treat women that way? And so whether you like it or not, you were forced very quickly to become a international relations expert, and a global politics history expert. Um, and so it was through that situation of being asked to explain things I had no awareness of that I um, found myself very passionately wanting to not just um, explain to people but try to convey that I realised what a negative perception there was out there about Islam because I'd had it myself for 19 years and um, I, I really felt that this was something that wasn't true and it wasn't, it's never been about trying to convert people but simply try to bring some balance to the public conversation and now especially as a mother, you know, I have an 11-year-old daughter and a 7-year-old son, um, I feel all the more um, pressing the need to try to create a society in which um, there is some nuance and calm and kindness in the conversation. You know, my daughter, it's horrible, she was watching the news the other day, she said to me, why does everybody hate Muslims? And as a mother, that is such a stab in the gut. And how do you explain that? And not only how do you explain it, but how do you explain it to your child in a way that doesn't end up having them feel despair or anger or a sense that they don't belong there? Um, and so it, it, it's through all of those feelings and experiences that um, pushes me to keep trying to participate in, in this sort of discussion. Mm. Rhonda. Um, so I grew up in Melbourne. I attended um, a Catholic primary school. And at the end of uh, grade six, my parents decided that they would send me to Australia's very first Islamic school. And um, I was furious. I tried to get expelled in the first three months, but it didn't work. <laughs> My mum was what the deputy principal. Uh, <laughs> I just tried to be as rebellious as possible. But my mum was the deputy principal, so she knew I was, what I was up to. That was one of the reasons I didn't want to attend. But um, it was, I think it was finally, I, I fell in love with a, a place in a community where I could sudden, well, finally be Randa, not Randa the Muslim or Randa the Arab. And reflecting on it now, I started year seven and, and I sort of came of age um, at the same time that the first Gulf War started. And so really my my identity and my, um, you know, sense of who I am as an adolescent was very much um, forged at a time when Muslims and Arabs were, were the folk devil, the other. And um, this had a very real impact on me and, and, you know, my peers at school, we would arrive at school and there would be graffiti, go back home, you wogs, go back home, you terrorists. We had um, half the school burnt down when we would go on school excursions. Um, people would yell out to us on the bus, uh, terrorists, nappy heads, ragheads, desert niggers, sand, sand cave people, um, camel jockeys. And so this was the sort of um, environment that, 
that I was growing up in and trying to work out who the hell I was as an adolescent, which is sort of the perennial question for every teenager, while at the same time being lumped with the burden of being a Muslim and an Arab and therefore other in the country I was born and raised in was incredibly challenging and frustrating. And, um, you know, I've always been the sort of person who is, well, I'm very stubborn, and um, I didn't want to give in, I didn't want to allow that sort of feeling of being the other to, um, to, you know, to silence me or to stop me from being who I am and, and stop me from fulfilling what, what I wanted to do. And I had friends who were sort of withdrawing to the safety of anonymity. So Muhammad would become Sam, Phillies would become Sarah. Um, they'd dye their hair blonde, wear blue contact lenses. They think if they looked more Anglo, this would render them more Australian. And I was very defiant and I refused to do that. And I started to be interested in this idea of identity politics and belonging um, very young as a teenager. And, I, and when I was 15, because because I've always loved reading, I've loved literature and words and writing, and I'd been writing short stories and, and getting all my angst out through my writing, I decided that I would try and change the world as, as an idealistic teenager through a book. <laughs> and so I wrote um, the first draft of Does My Head Look Big In This? And it was, I mean, it was really bad. It was sort of like the angry rantings of a teenager, but it was sort of my first attempt to use writing to try and... Um, create a different narrative or, or to try and give a voice to a Muslim woman because the sort of books, as you know, Susan, that you see in bookshelves that contain Muslim characters are always, you know, beneath the veil, under the veil, behind the veil, <laughs> beyond the veil. And, uh, you know, it's just, there's always this Muslim woman staring out, you know, behind her a niqab, pleading with her white reader to save her from, you know, Islam. And if she's not an oppressed dimwit, she's... Um, <laughs> escaping Islam to achieve liberation. So I wanted to counter that narrative. Um, and, and that's really how my politics started, through, through personal experiences of, of being made to feel different and otherized, and through um, a personality that doesn't like taking shit from anyone, <laughs> just wants to, to just change things out of a sense of justice. And just, can we go just go back to, when did your, did your were your parents the ones in your family who came to Australia? Uh, so my parents came separately. Um, my mum came with her family from Egypt. Um, and then my father, as a Palestinian, he became a refugee in 1965. And so he was in Kuwait, then Egypt, and then um, got a scholarship to Sydney University. And it was a decision between the UK and Australia. And someone told him in Egypt, the UK's cold. So he took the scholarship <laughs> <laughs> in Australia. And they met here in Sydney. Um, it sounds, I mean, it's really interesting to hear those stories because both of you were making very important decisions and, and ways of approaching life when you were really very young and when lots of, uh, you know, when any of us think about 15 or 19-year-olds that, you know, having to deal with those big, quite big issues. It's also, I think, interesting to look at that chronology. You talked about the first Gulf War. I mean, we sit now in a period where we see Islam in a particular way. If we're talking about the broad Australian community, world events as they are, um, uh, the rise of Daesh or IS or the death cult or whatever we're calling it today. But the history of the way this has evolved goes back not just to the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War, but it really even goes back very much to that period of, in the early 70s of, of, of Palestinian um, um, terrorism uh, events. Um, and 
you and, and your children and all of us are the inheritors of a particular view of Islam um, and a particular view of who uh, Muslims in the Australian community are. How do you see the situation at the moment? Um, well, you know, in preparation for this session, I uh, was, was looking through some, some old writing and I found a letter that I wrote to myself as a 16-year-old, writing to myself as a 40-year-old. So I've got four years left. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was interesting for me reading it because as a 16-year-old, I was saying, saying, you know, I hope that by the time you're reading this as a 40-year-old, you, you won't feel that you're out an outsider. And for me, it's really sad that I still feel that way, that things haven't changed. In fact, I think it's worse because um, when you look at the rates of Islamophobia in terms of um, just attacks you know, against Muslim women on the street or attacks against Muslim mosques or schools, it's actually worse now than it was post-September 11. And so I think it's, um, you know, I, I probably have never felt so much despair, but I still feel hope because I at least we have more opportunities to talk now, especially with social media and the alternative forms of media, to be able to raise our voices against Islamophobia. Um, but I do feel that we are in a worse situation than we were post-September 11 even and, and at the time of the Gulf War because it's now generational and the, the language has shifted as well. Um, I think now we can say things in the public in the public space that people would have been embarrassed to say. They would have said it backstage, but now it's front stage. And so we can have a prime minister who basically questions the intentions and sincerity of Muslim leaders when they condemn terrorism and not say anything wrong with that, that you know, to alienate the entire Muslim community in that way and just to get away with it. Um, so I think that there's still a long way to go, unfortunately. And what we're seeing now it is the cumulative impact of years of Muslims being the, really the folk devil in the Australian mm. imagination. Mm. Susan? Yeah, I would sadly agree that there is a, a growing sense of despair and what I've noticed um, with, from myself but also um, friends of mine who've just been tireless um, bridge builders and community workers since you know, September 11 and even before that is I'm starting to see a weariness in their eyes. They're, I'm starting to see this sense that how can this not be getting better? How can we still be having exactly the same conversations? How is it that we are still being asked to condemn these? At what point will people believe us when 10 years ago we said that sort of terrorism has nothing to do with us? Why do you still not believe us? You know, at what point will some, a Muslim be able to do something appalling and the rest of us not have to, you know, issue a public statement and, and, and apologise? Um, and it is, it is wearing because you start to wonder, what's the point? You know, if for those of us who have done lots of community outreaches and we've spoken at schools and we've participated in interfaith activities, we've written articles and um, all those sort of things and you feel like if the conversation's not changing, wh why do you keep going? And it's hard, like Rhonda said, you have to keep having hope because otherwise it's pointless. But it is a sad state of affairs that I think so many of us you know, however many years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, would not have believed that we would still be in this same position at the moment. Um, it, it's, it's sad and it's frustrating. For me, the irony is, I mean, because Islam is seen as the enemy, the irony is it's because of Islam and my faith that I have the hope mm -hmm. and that I, that, that's what gives me the resilience to believe that there is hope for us and that there is a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Otherwise, I could give up and, and sort of um, 
surrender myself to being the outsider and the other, which is incredibly damaging um, and dangerous. But because I refuse to do that, because as part of my faith, I'm not allowed to give up. Mm. I, I think that's, that's the irony in this. Mm. Mm. What other things, you know, in, what, what do you think is most effective? What have you seen being effective in changing people's minds about, or actually getting people to understand more about Islam beyond that folk devil kind of mm. view? I mean, this is your research. Do you want to go first? Um, well, so, so as, as part of my research, I'm looking at Islamophobia and racism, but from the point of view of people who would openly say they hate Muslims, want to see a return of the white Australia policy. So people on that end of the spectrum who are sort of proudly, proudly would label themselves as Islamophobes to the, you know, I'm not racist because I have a black friend or I'm not racist because I travelled in Morocco or eat Asian food. So different, <laughs> you know, spectrums. And what's, what's astounding for me is to meet people who are so vehemently against Muslims and have never met a Muslim in their life. So I sat down with a 93-year-old woman um, for an hour and we had a conversation about Muslims and she just really hates Muslims and wants them out of Australia. And then at the end she said, oh, you know, you're the first Muslim I've ever met. <laughs> and for me, so for me that's, that's part of the story, but it's not the only story because I don't know you, your background is sociology. There is this um, theory, that, con that contact theory, that if you meet people, um, you know, people who are different to you, that more, that those sort of personal relationships can build down prejudices. And it's certainly true that that can occur. But very often, um, it can also work the other way in which a good encounter, so with the, would, would reinforce the view, well, they're not, they're not all bad, but there's only a few who are good. So some of the people I spoke <laughs> or, to... Or we're the aberration. Yes. You're, or, you're quite moderate, not yeah, like the rest of yeah. them. That kind oh, you're of normal. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Um, you're, you're, yeah, that's exactly right. So there, there's that as well. Um, and then looking at it as well, I think, you know, we, we are a multicultural society, but in many ways it's on the surface. So people might come down to the western suburbs to have some, you know, good exotic food, but there's an actual real mixing so the fact that you've got someone from the North Shore in a restaurant in Auburn doesn't mean that that's a multicultural experience. Um, if they're not talking to people, <laughs> if it's not a mixing, you know, that's a sort of what, you know, Hassan Haj calls cosmopolitan multiculturalism, where you, you think that, you know, you're engaging with the world, but really you're not, you're consuming the other, you're consuming um, the, you know, the culture, you're not actually engaging with it. So for me, it's... It's, there's no one-size-fits-all answer. It's, it's, it's multi-layered and there's so many ways of addressing it. For, for me, the space that I like to do it in is through literature, through writing, um, and, you know, through humour, through, through the arts, you know, through politics. But um, like the session we went to before, ultimately, you have to change the system. There's only so much you can do, but if the system is creating these outside, inside groups, not much is going to change. Yeah. I really agree with Rhonda about there has to be lots of different things. It has to be systemic. And there does have to be that, you know, that person-to-person -person contact. I gave a... I was invited to speak in Wagga Wagga um, not long ago. Um, and I was quite nervous because I did a radio interview um, the week before in anticipation of it. And it was one of the... I've done a lot of radio interviews. And it was one of the toughest I'd, I'd ever done. It was only five minutes and it was just a hit parade of every negative assumption people have about Muslims. I thought I was just there to talk about a fashion show that they were doing and he said, well, why do Muslims hate dogs? And why, <laughs> what about, what's your opinion on female circumcision? What do you think about ISIS? And it was just, 
you know, question after question like that. It was just bang, 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 bang. So I was, I went quite nervously, not having any idea what kind of um, reception I'd receive. And so I spoke there with another man. And at the end, the mayor got up to to give the vote of thanks, and he was crying. And he said, "I am leaving here a changed person." And that. Um, it's when stuff like that happens, when, like Rhonda said, he had probably never spoken to a Muslim before or heard a Muslim um, give their opinion on anything before. And so that human-to-human contact can make a massive difference. Um, and I do enjoy participating in those sort of things. But I think we also need to be careful about, um, you know, as Rhonda said, that can never be the one-size-fits-all answer because if we do have that opinion, that what that does is put the onus on... That, well, if I've never met a Muslim, then it's reasonable that I think you're all crazy psychos. You know, it's reasonable that I hate you and want you out of my country. So we can't just assume that unless you've spoken to a Muslim that, um, that there is no ownership on, on the person for having hateful ideas as well. And that's where things like writing is so important because anyone can access that. Anyone can have the choice to, to you know, who can read, um, can have the choice to go and to find a book or, or read an article online. Um, it, there needs to be a, lots of different um, engagements and there has to be a willingness from both sides. If, if someone doesn't want to hear what you have to say, that's... I was just talking to Rhonda about this before I did um, an interview where I spoke for about 10 minutes about the research I'd done on Muslim women fighting sexism and how, you know, I, I'd been spoilt for choice with the number of women I could interview and how there's, this has been going on for hundreds of years and the Muslim women name men as their biggest supporters. You know, all, all these... My research had proved time and again all these stereotypes were broken... And then the, the journalist um, who was speaking to me said, oh, we've just had a text message come through and Sam says to say that um, whenever I see a Muslim woman, I feel so sorry for them. We all know they're oppressed. And I realised, I just thought, I've just spent 10 minutes telling you the facts and it feels like no matter what I said, it wouldn't matter. You've decided what it means to be a Muslim woman and no matter how much evidence we might have to the contrary, you don't want to hear that. And so there needs to be a willingness on both sides for things to change. Otherwise, you know, you're just talking to a brick wall. Before we go on a bit to talk about um, Islamophobia and the, the way that that plays out, particularly for women, I just want to ask, do a small audience quiz, um, which is, it's, it's very interesting to see what people think about how many Muslims there are, in fact, in Australia. And I just want to say, does anybody have a grasp of what proportion of the population are Muslim? Or, for example, the other way to do it is, are there more... Um, could, could we put these in order, say, for example, um, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism? Which one is there... Are there more people in Australia who belong to that religion? Anybody prepared to have a guess? Buddhism, correct. Um, anybody to prepared to have a guess about the proportion of uh, Australians who, who will identify as Muslim in terms of the census? You're very good. I tried this on people at work and they're much less... Uh, less. They were, they were, you know, this is the thing that I think it's about 2.2% of the Australian population um, identify in the census as Muslim. But, but I've talk to a lot of, like, if you ask people, they'll say, oh, about 10%. Mm. Um, and it's very interesting to see what people's perceptions are of that. But you're obviously a very, uh, very uh, census-reading, a census-literate audience. Some of the, um, one of the people that I... I do tell everybody that the audiences at All About Women are wonderful, so... <laughs> one of the people I interviewed 
he's come up with a theory that um, is based on statistics. So if you have a population of Muslims under 2%, it's dormant. Mm. And if it gets to 5%, He's got, you know... We're a living virus then. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Then we right. attack the host. That's right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. So he's got these benchmarks of percentages <laughs> and he's even got countries in there that don't even have Muslim majority populations or, or large Muslim populations. So we're safe, but he's trying to warn everyone. Yeah, the virus could attack. <laughs> Outbreak. <laughs> Um, let's talk a bit about, about what the kind of Islamophobia that you've talked about and, and what you see as the different kind of things, the different situations for Muslim women as opposed to that broader thing about uh, uh, Muslims as a community. Do you want to start? Okay, yeah, well, um, you know, I can speak, you know, from the experience of my research, was, which was just about Muslim women, um, because there is definitely a gendered aspect to Islamophobia. Um, you know, it's not insignificant and it's not coincidental that the uh, the majority of, of uh, attacks on Muslims, whether it be um, physical or verbal by, you know, strangers on the street, are to Muslim women, not to Muslim men. That's not a coincidence. It's, it's not just a funny aberration. There's a reason for that. Um, and one p could say, well, people could say, well, it's because they're more visible. You know, when I see a woman in a headscarf, I know they're Muslim. Um, but, you know, Muslim men can also be quite visible as well. You know, they often have beards. They often will dress quite distinctly. Um, there is a reason that Muslim women are, are attacked more. And uh, part of it is because... If someone wants to attack someone, some stranger wants to throw a bottle at someone on the street or shout abuse, the idea they have of what a Muslim woman is, which is submissive, meek, mute, they're going to go for the weak target as opposed to the, the Muslim man who they think is the big burly terrorist. So Muslim women are more likely to be victims of that sort of abuse um, because of the, the perception that we have of what a Muslim woman is. This stereotype of the weak victim encourages that kind of attack. Um, and it's what I found with my research is that attitude that we have towards Muslim women can actually make the sexism that they can experience within the Muslim community, obviously they experience sexism outside the Muslim community as well, just like all women do, but the Islamophobic attitude towards Muslim women can actually exacerbate the sexism they experience by creating what's called a double bind, where if you use the example of domestic violence, imagine there's a Muslim woman who is a victim of domestic violence and she wants to speak openly about that. Um, there is a genuine fear and awareness amongst all of the participants that I, that I interviewed who have to weigh up, if I am open about this issue that will reinforce all the negative stereotypes people have about Muslim men and Muslim women, that my husband beats me, that could very well create a, an increase in Islamophobia, of which she will probably be the greater recipient of. So what does she do? Does she speak out about it and risk inflaming an already Islamophobic sentiment in the community? Or does she keep silent and say nothing, then therefore not being able to ad address the situation? And then ironically, reinforcing this idea that Muslim women are these mute victims who do nothing to change their situation. You know, she's stuck between a rock, a hard place and a harder place. So this Islamophobia that exists in, in society has real world knock-on effects about the way Muslim women have to deal with not just what's happening outside the community, but also the issues that they face within the community. 
Now, some of the women I spoke to, um, it was a real problem for them. And they said, you know, there are so many times where I will not publicly address issues that I feel need to be addressed because I know it will make the situation on the ground worse. And then there are other women who say, I know it's going to make things worse, but I don't care. I just have to push through that anyway. But none of them had this concept that, um, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never thought of that. All of them were very aware that there was this constant tension and negotiation of how do I deal with this issue publicly? How do I, even if I deal with it internally, what are the ramifications of that? Um, and so Islamophobia does take on that gendered aspect of creating this these extra layers of burden and binding on we, uh, Muslim women that I don't think people realise the, the wide-reaching effects it has. Uh, so in my experience, just interviewing people as part of my research, um, of course there are people who are on the, the extreme end who think all Muslim women and, and men are terrorists and ticking time bombs. Um, and so for me, it, it, it's, it's, it reflects for me the, the wider reaction in Australia to racism in general. We're very quick to condemn um, racism on public transport, the ugly, crass sort of racism, because it's so obviously objectionable. But for me, with my research, what is far more dangerous and insidious is the racism of people who have absolutely no idea that they are um, being racist in their sort of liberal, um, you know, tolerant um, bubble. And so they... Tell us what you mean. Oh, so, um, you know, comments such as... Um, you know, of course, all women have the right to dress as they choose. Um, and, you know, I think the, the, the veil is very beautiful and women look very beautiful in it. Um, but how can it really be their choice? Um, you, you know, because what, how could someone, you know, choose to cover their hair? And, and, you know, is it really their choice to do so? So they're questioning the idea of choice or um, not realising that in doing so, they are delegitimising the agency of that Muslim woman. Um, or, or people who are genuinely, genuinely concerned about the horrific um, abuses of, of women's rights in the name of Islam around the world, um, and who, who see that sympathy and, and genuine concern about that as an, as, a, as an excuse to think that it's somehow inherent to Muslim men to, to abuse women and to deny them their rights and have absolutely a blinkered view about context um, and, and the idea that you know, there are, there are sociological conditions that, that generate that sort of um, misogyny and not to excuse it, of course, um, but uh, don't realise that the comments that they're making it has the idea that, you know, brown men are just genetically, you know, it's just inherent that they would, of course, um, have those sorts of views towards Muslim women or just little comments. Uh, so, oh, you, you know, you, you speak English so well or um, <laughs> oh, so you must be a moderate Muslim because you're not wearing a veil um, or, you know, it's so good to hear somebody say these things yeah. and not realise, and, and I put it from now, I mean, I, I'm not as polite as I used to be and I just said, well, you're deaf, you're not listening. You know, why don't you actually listen to Muslim women and Muslim And we've been saying it for a long time. It's not that we're not saying it. It's because you're not listening. And, um, you know, there's no concept. And for me, the, the most problematic thing about gendered Orientalism or gendered Islamophobia is, is the idea that the centre of the universe is the white experience, like the white middle-class experience, and that's the gaze upon which everything else, everyone else is looked upon. So it's always referenced back to that. 
Uh, and that ties in with your research about feminism and, and how we're fighting sexism and patriarchy using Islam as a platform for change. And some people can't possibly see that as equal or legitimate because either they have a very, um, very, uh, you know, a very secular understanding of the word and, and see all religion as just brainwashed sheep. So they, you know, they delegitimize it on those grounds. Um, how do people respond when you say to them, "You're not listening"? Oh, well, people like that usually, it's like you said, they're not, they're not listening because they don't actually genuinely want to hear it. So they'll, they'll deny it, they'll refuse to accept, or they'll be like Joe Hockey and say, well, it's never enough, <laughs> you know, so if he, if he himself can... Or even Tony Abbott. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, when he came out and said, I really want to hear more Muslim leaders yeah. calling for peace. And it's like, anyone who has access to Google, just go home and Google. I ask all of you, go home and Google, Muslims condemn terrorism. You will see the page after page after page. This is not hard to find. This is not hidden. It was covered in... The Age, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian, the Herald, the, the Herald Sun, Channel 7, SBS, ABC. This is not, you know, us just issuing one um, press release and sticking it under a rock. This is <laughs> everywhere. And it's like, at what point do you need to take responsibility for the fact that you've got your fingers in your ears? It is not fair to keep telling us, why don't you condemn? And then when we go, okay, you're like, la, 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 la. You have to take some ownership for this. You know, when, when people come to me and say, "Why?" I'm really upset that Muslims aren't saying anything against ISIS. The, there's been hundreds of Muslim scholars around the world who came together and wrote what's called a letter to Baghdadi, Baghdadi being the head of ISIS. They wrote a 76-page, point-by-point, classical refutation, according to Islam, classical Islamic refutation, point-by-point, point, of everything ISIS stands for. It's been translated from Arabic to English, German, Turkish, Bosnian. It's in Japanese. It's in so many languages. It's available freely on the internet. Nobody has heard about this. And I spoke to some of the organisers. I said, why, like, did you send this out? He said, we sent it to every news agency we could find. The only people who would even run it was the Huffington Post. Nobody else cared. And so you see... It was when, too long. There was an executive summary. <laughs> there was an executive summary you could have read. And so, you know, at some point, you know, as Rana said, you, we can only keep condemning so much. At, at what point will you listen? Because it, for me, like, I've come to a point now where there's actually no magic number. It, the point is not is not condemnation, because if it was, it's clear that the condemnation has been offered and it's there. The point is why, and, and I understand that as scholars of Islam, th there is a responsibility to condemn what is happening in the name of Islam on a, on a scholarly basis, to refute it on, um, in terms of Islamic principles. But why should we as Australian Muslims condemn what is happening in the name of Islam because we happen to be Muslim and somebody overseas is committing something in the name of a religion that I also believe in. That's a very, for me, um, dehumanising and, and tenuous link because otherwise, where do we stop? You know, and we always make these analogies, well, should all Catholics condemn um, pedophile priests? And, but we, like, that basic logic seems to be constipated when it comes to Muslims. Why should we constantly be forced to take accountability for the actions of other Muslims? Um, you know, th this has real, a real uh, impact on our day-to-day -day lives when you are constantly sitting in that witness box with, with people who have committed crimes in the name of, of your faith, and you are, you know, by association, guilty as well. And... You know, it, it really breaks my heart about what, what, how our children are growing up into this cycle where they are already tainted by this, by this 
you know, this, this idea that you are somehow linked with what is happening. Um, it, it, it really does have it. Because impact. what it seems to come down to is unless we condemn everything that happens every time, then we must agree. And that's what people are essentially mm. saying. If we do not hear you condemn that and that and that and that and that and that and that, then we will assume then you must. You must support it unless we hear you say it. And that's why it can never carry on. That's why when we condemned it 10 years ago, people won't still believe it now because the underlying assumption is you do all agree. You are all like that. Mm. And that is a really depressing realisation to live with. That You know, when I go out in my hijab, that people will be looking at me and genuinely thinking that I think like ISIS and that, well, of course she would. Why wouldn't she? That there is no concept that, well, well of course she wouldn't. Why would she? You hit the nail on the head. That, that is what's dehumanising mm. about it. The fact that if you don't condemn beheadings and throwing gays off, off the top of buildings, that you must agree with it. Yeah. And that, for me, is, is what's so... And that's why there can never be enough. It yeah. can never be enough. That's uh, it's depressing when you put it as, as clearly as that. How do you think we have arrived at that situation where the assumption is so negative? I mean, it's a very complex set of causal relationships. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a little bit about that historical kind of thing. And I, I guess we've talked about how things can change. Mm. But in some ways, there's really no simple answer. People mm. are not going to stop. I mean, I, I, it, it's trapped in this situation about if you do, um, you know, condemn... If people do condemn on demand, stuck in a cycle of thinking that that has to happen, and, and that, then there's that kind of very neg negative judgment if it doesn't happen. Have people got to... Have people in the Muslim community got to a point where they're not going to play that game? Do you think? Mm. Yeah, there's, there's a real tension in the community between those who, who feel that we've condemned enough, that it's clear that the politics of condemnation is not working. And I don't know if you all saw the interview on Late Line with um, Emel Barici and um, was it Wasim, um, who refused to, to explicitly answer her question, do you condemn ISIS, because he didn't want to engage in that. Um, and there were people who agreed with that point of view and that approach and that tactic and others who didn't. So within our own community, there are tensions about, well, you know, do we play by the rules of the game or do we start to insist on different rules? So with it, that's a bit traumatic for our own community because I'm there's sure. lots of um, dissension and a lot of hostility about how you engage and, and what the strategy should be. And I don't know if many of you saw that interview, but um, you would have to say that that, as a strategy, that backfired. Oh, definitely, it did backfire. So, so the way the way it came across for those of you who haven't seen it is Emma Alberici, very persistently continuing to ask the question, and and a refusal to engage. I think that was very much interpreted as mm. not as I'm not going to play that game, but as I won't condemn those actions. Mm. I don't think he um, explained his strategy well. I understood yeah. what he was doing, but he, he didn't explain it. Um, yeah, it's so a it did tough one. Yeah. What, can you tell us a little bit, um, perhaps Susan, about, about what you were, were talking about, about the, the, uh, the activism of women within mm. the Muslim community? Yeah. Because I think that's an interesting 
story. That's a bit happier. Um, yeah, that's been one of the lovely things about the research that I've been doing is, um, so you know, as Anne said, um, my PhD, which I handed in two weeks, hopefully, <laughs> is um, that uh, I'm looking at the way Muslim women fight sexism within the Muslim community. And so I've interviewed theologians and activists and writers and bloggers um, and asked, you know, all of them who are active in some way about fighting sexism within the Muslim community. And... Um, just ask them, you know, about their lives and their experiences. Who supports you? Who doesn't support you? Um, why do you do this? What's hard? What's great? What motivates you? Um, and what's been uh, lovely, uh, part of the lovely thing is these women, you know, excuse the language, but they're total badasses. They're just amazing. They are fearless. And they've been doing this, some of them for their whole lives, all of them for many years. Um, and whether the Muslim community has supported them or not, whether the wider community has supported them or not, they've just kept chipping away at, you know, fighting the sexism that exists within the Muslim community, as it does in, in every community. Um, but what was interesting for me is that all but one of the women I interviewed operates from a pro-faith perspective. So far from seeing Islam as part of the problem or the cause of the problem or in the way to fixing things, these women all see that within the religion itself, they have the tools to fix the, to fix the problems that they see women facing. So, for example, one woman I interviewed who was um, a lawyer had um, issued, uh, drafted masses of legal reform for the Pakistani government because in Pakistan, um, rape falls under the legal category of adultery. So if a woman is raped, she would often end up being... Uh, accused of committing the crime of having extramarital sex, which is obviously very problematic. Pakistan says this is under, it operates under Sharia law. So this woman that I interviewed who is a lawyer um, delivered all this reform for the Pakistani uh, government on, on specifically on that issue of, of rape falling under zina, as it's called, which is adultery. And she, kept, she uh, put her entire argument in a Sharia framework. The entire argument was like, this is why what you're saying is wrong according to Sharia and this is why these, this should be, rape should be charged as a crime against the woman according to Sharia. And, I, you know, there were so many women, all the women I interviewed operate in a similar way. So another woman was using religious arguments to stop domestic violence in the Muslim community, all that sort of thing. And I say this, I get that a lot of people will feel uncomfortable about this and there'll be people sitting there thinking, you know, I, I don't know if I feel okay about this. And one of the things for me that came out of my research is just how important it is that we let go of this idea of a one-size-fits-all feminism, that we need to trust women's agency enough to know that if we all have the goal of eliminating sexism in the community, we need to trust that there will be times when women in different communities will say, we know how to fix this and it might not look the way you want it to look. And we need to focus more on the substance of what's happening than the form. In terms of the solution, we need to focus more on the substance of the solution than the form. And so it might not look the way uh, non-Muslims want it to look, but if the end goal is eradicating sexism, we need to take a pragmatic approach. And all the women I interviewed were very pragmatic. They were like, we want to get rid of sexism. We, not only do we want to use a religious framework because this is something that they felt uh, personally committed to and believed had the tools, but from a pragmatic point of view, they said, we know that using a religious framework will mean that what we do is so much more likely to be accepted by the community. It has a, a currency that will work here. So if it's going to work, 
we need to trust that judgment and say, okay, let's use that system. Um, and so it was really interesting to see, like I said, all except one were operating in a pro-faith perspective because I think so often when I speak about this, people assume that Islam is the problem for women. The reason we see sexism in the Muslim community is because of Islam. Um, and the, the life stories of these women show that, that that wasn't the case at all. Um, if, I mean, there are many things where people looking at Islam from the outside, uh, this view that Islam is the problem, will say, you know, the, the, all of those kinds of points about the fact that, I mean, they're very interesting. If, if, we, if we assume that in Australia people are um, operating from a, a fundamentally, um, a point of view that's fundamentally influenced by the Judeo-Christian tradition, say, um, and are, you know, saying Islam is still interpreted literally in some cases. There was, you know, what there's no, hasn't been a reformation which says that these are historical documents that can be interpreted in different ways. That Islam is also a much more decentralised religion for people who operate from an assumption where with various Christian uh, sects or groupings that there is somebody who is a central authority who can say, well, this is the way we're going to deal with it now. Um, that somebody who is the Pope can say, well, actually, according to encyclical X, Y, Z, we're, we're not going to have contraception or, you know, or those kinds of things. Um, how do you try to... What are the tools that you find yourself having to use to explain um, some of those, I guess, more technical things about, about Islam as a religion to people? Are people interested in that or do the conversations never get in that direction? Um, definitely. So often, yeah, people will say, why, you know, why doesn't Islam modernise? You know, I get that one a lot. And I, you want to see modern Islam? That's ISIS. You want to know what a modern interpret... That's ISIS. ISIS and Al-Qaeda are one of the most modern interpretations of Islam you can see. And by that, what I mean is it's not that, um, you know... Their way of interpreting Islam is a truly new and innovative way of trying to understand the religion. These are not religious scholars. A lot of them are engineers or, you know, random dudes from the street who met in a chat room and, and go overseas. Two of and them bought um, Islam for Dummies on Islam the way Islam for Dummies at the airport, airport on the way to go and fight with ISIS. It's so true. these, are, these are not religious scholars. These are people who are interpreting the religion for Has themselves. Has been banned yet? <laughs> they, they open the Quran and decide, we will decide for ourselves what this means and, and, and how to interpret it. And that's a, f a fundamentally modern way of looking at Islam. Traditional Islam is one that is deeply rooted in scholarship of, of generations and understands things like uh, the context in which verses were revealed, the context in which you find yourself today and how do you... Under As a person living in Australia in 2015, how am I to understand this verse? We have a history for that. We have a methodology for that. That's classical Islam. So it's frustrating when people say, you know, when are we going to see a modern Islam? That's it. What we're seeing overseas now, that's the terrifying reality. The, the traditional scholarship and the traditional orthodox Islam is a, is a religious tradition that has built within it ways to interpret things in a modern, in a modern context and understand things in a modern way. Um, but it's built on rigorous scholarship which goes back all the way to the earliest scholars and knows that you have to understand the context of the religion and verses to know how to implement them in daily life. 
Um, and so if anything, you know, so often for Muslims, it's about saying, well, actually, what does our religion really teach us about this traditionally? What did scholars 1,200 years ago say about this sort of thing? Because the reality is the human condition hasn't really changed. We're still fighting with the same issues of arrogance and greed and violence and desire and desire for power and all that sort of thing. That sort of thing has been addressed. It may take on modern clothing, but we've dealt with that. Our scholars have dealt with that. And we still have modern scholars today who are still reinvesting in it. But it's the lack of scholarship that we see happening in the terrorist organisations today. That is what is a uniquely modern phenomenon. And that's why it's so problematic. And I think also, like the, what you said is so true. Like we have this history of diversity of opinions in jurisprudence. And there's no, there's no you can't say this is forbidden um, you know, there's usually several opinions interpreting the Quran, and that was okay. In fact, it was expected. It, no one has exclusive access to the truth, and that was inherent in the in the jurisprudential exercise. That that effort that you were you would try to seek the truth. You would try to make sense of God's words in the Quran or the Prophet's life in the in the sayings of the Prophet um, in the Hadith. But no one would ever claim classically that this was the answer. They would always end uh, a legal ruling with "and God knows best." The problem now among so-called um, you know, Google sheikhs and do it yourself scholars <laughs> who buy Islam for dummies at Heathrow Airport is that they think that they are speaking in God's name. They actually claim to have this, you know, direct, you know, speed dial with God that they actually know what, what this Quranic verse means. And that is the problem. It's this complete um, crisis in authority that we are seeing now. And I think it is mixed with, the, with modernity and this idea that, you know, if I, I, if I want to find out if this is okay in Islam, I can just um, put it up on, as a question on my Facebook status and someone can give me the answer. It's this approach to learning now, and I think this is across the board, in, not just for Muslim community, that it's this soundbite answer that you can, you don't have to invest in any learning, you don't have to do any, you know, serious reading um, to get an answer, that the answers are just one size fits all. And of course you try to talk about, you just mention the word jurisprudence in an interview and the journalist's eyes glazes over, you know, so what's your opinion about the hijab? You know, like it's just, there is, there is no opportunity or, or um, possibility to talk about how incredibly rich, diverse and dynamic the Islamic scholarship is because people aren't interested in that ultimately. I mean, we, across the board, politics is just dumbed down in general, let alone yeah. talking about... Um, you know, it's the, the nuances of Islamic jurisprudence. And that's, that's a, really pro a really big problem. We've got some time to take some questions from you. There are two microphones in the audience, one over here, one over there, so that if you do have a question, please make your way to one of those microphones. Um, and we, you can see that we've been making this a uh, hijab, headscarf, virtually burqa-free conversation. Incredible. Um, <laughs> um, because one of the things when we were talking about this session was how there is a relentless focus on things that are not of great importance to, to Muslim women themselves. So I'm hoping that we can continue that vein. Um, we'll take a question from over here. Hi, um, I'm a pol politics student at Macquarie University. And I just wanted to ask, do you believe that there is a political leveraging of Islam in our community, specifically towards sexism, to propagate this kind of negativity in our culture? Or do you think it's purely ignorant? Or do you think there's a combination of this bias for both political capital and the fact that Westerners generally feel they have this white gaze? 
Um, I think definitely in conversations... Sorry, I'm going to have to say the B word, Anne. Um, In conversations about the burqa ban, I think, is a classic example of the way... um, Politics and politicians will um, try to use uh, the the plight of the poor oppressed Muslim woman to, to gain a bit of favour. Um, you know, we, every now and then the burqa ban debate will come up in society. It'll come up again, I can tell you it will. Um, often inexplicably, just all of a sudden it, w- it will emerge. Um, and, and, you know, people say, think, like Rhonda said, oh, I don't mind the headscarf, but, you know, that covering the face, that's going a bit far. I feel very uncomfortable about that. Um, and what was interesting in the last burqa ban debate was that... Um, that it wasn't even based on anything. It, it, it emerged that the, the whole thing about we have to ban the burqa in Parliament House came from a rumour that a cameraman said he heard. And suddenly we, as a, as a nation, were having a conversation yet again about not just the place of Muslims, but the place of Muslim women and, and can they come into Parliament House and we better put them in the, the penalty box. That we should put them in with the school children was a staggering... Dis- like, if they're dangerous, why are you putting them with the kids? Like, that's... That, that genuinely was bizarre. So I think, um, and similarly um, with the invasion of Afghanistan, for example, both Laura Bush and um, Cherie Blair came out publicly and said, we really need to think about Muslim women in Afghanistan. We, they need our help. And that was seen as a, as a reason to help um, bolster support for the invasion of Afghanistan. So I think um, attitudes towards Muslim women will definitely have been used as, as political leverage because... Um, People, you know, they encourage to to feel uh, sorry for us. The number of times the word plight is put with the words Muslim woman, um, it shows that that is how we are understood and it is a very useful tool. Over here to number two. Um, There was several sort of, I guess, comments and references to the idea of dumbing down our politics, our understanding... And this concept of, you know, the eyes glazing over whenever we talk about certain things that may stretch our level of knowledge a little bit or interest. Um, I think a big part of that is around the education of people. And I don't mean, um, you know, information for dummies type education. I'm really interested to hear what both of you are planning on doing with your PhDs when you're finished and how you can contribute, obviously, the wealth of scholarship that you are both, you know, in the process of acquiring um, to improving this process? Well, um, well I'm, I'm hoping to work in academia, but um, as I wrote my PhD and after I did my interviews, uh, I, I realised that there was a young adult novel in there as well, so I wrote one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm editing it at the moment. So I've sort of... I see myself on two paths because I love that creative side of me and I don't want to let that go because I, I feel there's a real... There's a real joy in, in being creative and if I can also hopefully change people's hearts and minds as well. Um, so I've, I've taken some inspiration from some of my interviews um, with some, some pretty horrible people <laughs> and, and put it into a young adult novel and then I'm hoping to, um, to pursue an academic career as well. If there are any jobs out there. Yeah. <laughs> if there's any jobs, that's <laughs> always that's always <laughs> that's always the caveat. If there's any jobs, I mean, obviously, I'd love to work in academia too. If again, if the work was available, um, you know, a number of people have said to me, "Oh, you should really turn your PhD into a book," because one of the things that. Um, Sad and me is that um, you know. For those of you that don't know, when generally when you do a, a, a thesis and a PhD dissertation, the the start of your PhD is 
called the literature review, where you review all the previous literature and research that's been done on the topic and, and you find your niche. And it was very sad for me that I actually couldn't find much research at all on the topic of Muslim women fighting sexism in the Muslim community. There was like heaps on the hijab, heaps and heaps and heaps. Um, quite, you know, there was stuff about, you know, the, the plight of the plight of oppressed Muslim <laughs> women and, and those sort of things, but there wasn't anything on that. Um, people don't seem to think it happens. They don't seem to think that Muslim women are fighting sexism in the Muslim community. I had a conversation with a very well-known journalist who I won't name because you'll all know who he is, but um, he came up to me, um, I was at a dinner and he came up to me and said, oh, what do you, what do, you do? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm doing my PhD. He said, oh, what in? And I said, I'm, I'm looking at the way Muslim women fight sexism within the Muslim community. And his eyes widened. He said, oh, that's dangerous waters. And I said, well, not really. You know, um, I've been... Uh, I've been spoilt for choice. There's lots of women that want to participate and, um, you know, it's been going on for hundreds of years. And he said, so did the women need you to keep it secret what they were doing? And I said, well, no. In fact, um, the women, a, a number of the women actually got angry when I said, would you like a pseudonym because they wanted their names to be attached to their work. And he said, did, and I swear to you, this is what he said because I wrote it down as soon as he left. He said, did their husbands know of this apostasy? <laughs> apostasy. And I said, um, well, actually, uh, of all the Muslim women I spoke to, um, the second most common area of support they listed was Muslim men. They said their biggest supporters were Muslim men, the second category. And at this point, he was literally speechless. Like, he's, he had no other words. And this is from a journalist. You know, this isn't an idiot. This is someone who we consider to be very erudite and, and switched on. And I tell that story to say there is just no belief that this is happening. And so, um, you know, people said you should turn it into a book. People should know that this is happening and it needs to be good counterbalance to the other stuff that we hear out there. But I'm so sick of my thesis at this point. I don't think I could. I could revisit it to turn it into a, to a book. Maybe, I don't know, out of a bit of time I would, but... Um, at this stage, I don't know if I can spend another second with it, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take uh, from microphone one when we'll have to make this the last question, I'm afraid. Sorry. Um, hi. Uh, so at the beginning, Anne was saying that there are a lot of conversations about Muslim women and not enough conversations with Muslim women. And you've both talked a lot about how you're writing about it, whether in your thesis or in your novels, is bringing it into more into public media and into the public eye. What do you think that other people can do to kind of transition from conversations about to conversations with Muslim women in the Australian community? Um, it's just, I, I guess, just trying to reach out to, to people. I, I guess in the social media space is a fantastic way of building those networks. Um, and that's the beauty of social media. You have access to people whose vo voices are often silenced from mainstream media. Um, I'm a really firm believer and big believer in those alternative media spaces like, you know, New Matilda and, and just these sorts of organisations and, and media spaces where these voices do get an opportunity to be heard. And I've made friendships and connections through people who have contacted me um, after I've written an article there and tried to build a relationship from that. So it's just, I guess, trying to, to find these sorts of spaces to connect with people. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because, um, yeah, find people on Facebook or Twitter that you can follow that are Muslim women. And, you know, I force myself to follow people of every background, even ones I don't agree with at all what they say because I want to make sure I'm 
living beyond my bubble and I'm not just listening to people who um, who say things that, that I necessarily agree with. Um, so fi- finding people like that on social media and following what they say. But the other thing I would recommend is that um, we are starting to get more Muslim women speaking in the media. Um, and I did a research paper on the massive personal cost for those women um, who are who are Muslim and who speak in the media, the horrific backlash they get from the wider community. You know, you should see the stuff sent. I'm sure Runda gets it. Mm. The hate mail we get, the horrible tweets that we get sent to us, the some of the photos that have been sent to me are just horrific images. Um, but also we get criticised within the Muslim community as well. So, you know, um, w- without fail, you know, I'll do an interview on TV and I'll get an email from a concerned brother, never named, you know, dear sister, your hijab was very bright on TV. Do you think this is appropriate? At the same time (laughs) as, you know, at the same time as, you know, I'll get this ghastly troll say, like I had a tweet the other day saying, I want to burn you alive in your hijab. So we get this, we get, and so you can feel as a Muslim woman, you're getting it from both sides. So when you see a a Muslim woman comment in the media, whether it's an opinion piece, she has an interview on TV, seek her out, send her an email and say, hey, you did, if she was good, you know, you don't need to be tokenistic about it. Great interview. You know, I really like, thank you for sharing what you have to say. That kind of support can mean a massive amount Definitely. as well. It's because it's overwhelming sometimes. It is overwhelming. Yeah. I think if yeah. you, anybody who, if you look at, I think the last time that you appeared on Q&A, mm. there was a fairly extraordinary reaction to that episode of Q&A. I got mail sent to my house. I'm still trying to work out how they got my address. It was bizarre. And the tweets and the emails, that was a very flamboyant dress. Was your husband approving of you wearing that? (laughs) (laughs) It's like the most outrageous emails. Um, So you've got a positive, uh, we've got got a positive takeaway here about what, what we all have to do. I'm scared that Emails, we've all tweets you. with no comments on uh, no clothing comments <laughs> or exceptionally positive ones, um, and and support for women who who do keep the conversation going um, for all of us to listen to and participate in. We're going to be hearing from uh, Randa later this afternoon in a session. What I couldn't say which might um, elaborate on some of these themes. But I want you to join me in thanking both of our participants this afternoon. Thank you.